listener production. Jamie, I want to share with you that I have a particularly close relationship with this topic on this episode. My co-host is Dr. Jamie Lee. Hi there, Jamie. Hey, Joe. This conversation, I think, is going to be really important to me because we're talking about losing a loved one and living with the grief that you are left with when someone that you love dies, um, which every single person has experienced, although not everybody has experienced losing a partner, but we've all experienced loss. Sadly, it's reality of life. And I'm blessed not to have experienced a loss of a partner, but I lost my father when I was four, so I lived with my mum and that very real experience of her losing her partner. It was kind of just present in our life from the age of four onwards always. And so because of that, I, and I, you know, I had my own grief, of course, as a child, but I witnessed my mum grieving and I've always been both impacted enormously by that, but very fascinated with grief. And I think that a lot of us are, but somehow there's a taboo around it. We don't talk a lot about grief. Would you say that's true? That's true. Grief can be very hard to express and it sits very deep within you. Mm. And so it's, it can almost be overwhelming to express that pain. And at the same time, acknowledging it is so painful, you, you almost want to shy away from it at times. Yeah. Well, today we are really fortunate to have a guest who is willing to speak about grief because I think it's a very important conversation. And this series is a lot about helping people with whatever they're facing in their lives. So we're very grateful to Lara Carey for coming in and to you, Lara, for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I feel really honoured to be here. So is it painful for you to talk about loss, to talk about grief, your grief? The talking about it isn't painful. The living with it is. Mm. I think it's more painful for other people to hear and to absorb and to really you know, people don't know what to say and don't know how to react. And it's, it's something that don't, they don't want to be pushed in their face. They want you to be okay. So I think that's harder than the living with it or the talking about it. Mm. They want you to be okay because mm. it's awkward? They're uncomfortable? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I've thought a lot about, wondered about whether what it is that make people, I mean, everyone's going to die. Yes. When you lose someone close to you, that's the thing that's in your face. Like I, I mean, and I... Someone's going to suggest that I say professional after I say this, but genuinely it's a daily question in my head of going, is it going to be today? Will it be a car accident? Is it going to be cancer? You know, mm. knowing the knowledge, it's, it's there, it's waiting at some mm-hmm. point. But I think people probably can't live with that generally. So I think that people go through their lives pretending that to, they will wake up tomorrow, definitely, and they'll make plans. You have to live making plans mm. and it's very hard to live on those two planes. And so acknowledging somebody else's loss kind of brings that into the fore. Mm. You know, most people don't have a will. Mm. Why yeah. not? Because they don't want to mm. think about it. Can you tell us what happened uh, when you lost your husband, Ben? Normal day, no sense that anything was going to be wrong. It was at the end of the sort of summer holiday before going back to, to work and he went paragliding as he has many, many times over a decade. Um a freak wind, a very strong gust of wind dumped him on a cliff top and he died and there was no preparation and um, suddenly life was, was never the same. And what shifts for you 
I mean, you know, there's obviously, I'm, I'm imagining from that very first moment, there's a shift, obviously, but then did, did the shifts keep coming? Yeah, it's a, a kind of an interesting journey. So, you, you, I mean, I honestly felt like I, and I described it as being plunged to the, to the centre of the earth's core, you know, with no sense of where was up, you're absolutely alone in that place and, and you think you're never going to get out. Um, and you have all this support, but people, you know, are either afraid of what that means or they want to see that you're going to be okay or they keep telling you, you know, there'll be a new normal, these are the sort of things, or that, you know, he well, he died doing what he loved, so that should make you sort of feel better or what a, a whole lot of I that's the dumbest thing. <laughs> Don't you think? You like, know, in a sense, but then, you know, there's a complication, which is a very different journey for people who who see their loved ones die of a long illness. Yes. Which, you know, in my family, my little family, my kids and I go, you know, as awful as what we've had to deal with, he, it was a, a better death, I'm putting that in quote, in air quotes, mm-hmm. you know, than struggling through a horrible, long, debilitating illness. He was perfectly happy and well and then was gone. And in a way, that is a better way to go. It's a different journey, though, mm-hmm. of of then what happens from that point because I think watching someone slowly, you know, their life slowly ebb away from them uh, is, a, is a really different journey and acceptance than having something happen very suddenly. They're there alive. Your life is complete. You know, you, you're arguing about what time they've got to be back and then the next minute they're not ever going to be back. It's impossible for people to imagine that. And I think that's where the fear of touching that deep fear that comes for other people, you know, also, humans are one of the only mammals or creatures on this planet that have awareness of our death, that we know that one day we will die. And being faced with our own mortality, you know, there's, there's stories and legends of people do anything that they can to avoid death. How do you go about living when you have experienced such a loss? In days, in increments. So the trajectory, and it was interesting for me when I landed in the core of the earth uh, and a while after that I started to seek out resources, you know, people. I became obsessed with reading stories about people who knew they were going to die, you know, what this process was like. But then I also found support groups and, again, it was like being dropped down the road. I mean, I do, do feel like it's like these worlds that exist that you don't know, you know, walking around at the top of the earth and then suddenly there's all this stuff going on underneath. So widows groups and grief groups. And and now, I can, you know, four years, almost four years on, I can say that I can see that we all kind of start the same way. You know, the journey is the same It's it's and it's horrible to think, you know, you're going through this thing that is the worst thing and you're the first person to ever experience this level of pain and you will never be the same again and, and this is only happening to me and then you find numbers, <laughs> numbers of people who are going through the same thing mm-hmm. uh, exactly the same way and their stories are all very different, you know, but at the, at the end of the day losing someone that you love, you all start at the same point of this what has happened to my life, what the hell has happened to me? You redefine yourself, and and that can't start at the beginning. You've just got to survive. And there was this thing in these widows groups that kept saying second year is worse than the first year. So I was like, oh my god, how could it be worse than this? You know, it's impossible. But it's just different. You know, the t- you 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 know once you've done the first year and you know what those moments and the triggers and the anniversaries and how it feels and the tidal waves that it feels like of massive grief and that floor you and the 
tears that come without any expectation. You start to feel, oh, that's what this is. Mm. You know, and so four years on, I can say it still hits me at times when I'm not expecting it and big things can happen and I'm okay where I don't expect to be okay and little things can undo me. But I go, oh, that's that. Mm. You know, like the stomach ache before an exam. First time you have an exam, you don't know what it is and you're so nervous and then you know how to handle it. Mm. So I think you become accustomed to it. And when you feel that, how do you respond to it? Uh, if I'm moments. alone, mm. I will let myself cry mm. and just be in the moment. Uh, one of Ben's best friends died 10 years before he died and his widow, you know, using other people who've been there to give you advice was, so for me that was really significant and important. And she talked about that grief, her grief was like tending, and so she also lost her four-year-old child in an accident that mm, killed wow. her husband. Mm. Um, so it was something that, you know, and again, where people say to me, I cannot imagine how you go on. Like I felt bad about her. I cannot imagine how mm-hmm. you work through that. But she has this garden. She says she tends these the roses in her garden of grief where sometimes she just spends time with missing her time as a, as a, as a wife. And sometimes she tends the grief of the future that she will never have and sometimes it's the mother part of her and sometimes it's the best friend that she lost and and allowing yourself to feel those, the loss of different aspects of a really complex thing, you know. Mm. Um, I recently, one of my best friends recently lost her husband and she'd separated from him before he died. Now, the complexity around that mm. is something completely different again where, mm. you know, and what she was saying recently is what when she thinks about him and what she misses most is the early days, which isn't where they were when he died, mm. but she lost that as well. She lost the opportunity to ever get back there. So, you know, your journey, depending on where you've been and what your relationship was like, will, will depend on, you know, what you miss. Jamie, do we know what happens physiologically when someone is in extreme grief like that? It's actually one of these areas, you know, what, where it goes, no one knows. In Chinese medicine, they say it's very much in the lungs and in the chest. And mm. you can feel that. You can feel that heartache. Um, physiologically, not so clear. But what we do know is that emotions is energy in motion, right? And grief is a very strong, deep emotion that needs to be processed. Mm. And when it's not processed it can get stuck in the body, stuck Mm. somewhere, and it needs to be expressed. And over time, it will, it lingers. And so over time, it will just keep popping up as it does. Um, And in those moments, like what Lara was sharing, you take the time to actually let yourself cry if you're alone. That that's very important because you're allowing that wave of grief to pass through you. But does that mean then when the world expects you to move on and go back to work and parent and do all the things that living expects of you, that you're sort of having to somehow compartmentalise yourself so that you can keep living? Well, it's a sort of a weird one because you, you're on, I mean, on on two or three levels. I mean, one of the things physiologically it happened to me, and I'm, I know it's not just me, is mm. I lost, I completely lost my sense of, my senses. So mm. I couldn't eat because nothing tasted like anything and I wasn't hungry. He died in, you know, the height of summer and I was cold or, the, or not cold or hot. I wasn't aware of what the weather was at all. Like mm. I just, I wore the same clothes every day and it didn't matter what, you know, what the weather was like. I couldn't feel it and things were just too bright but colours weren't distinct. So there was a whole lot of stuff that sort of took quite a while, you know, mm-hmm. to come back. Um, but the other thing is you're also living on this sort of two planes of being able to laugh at a joke because it is 
funny, which people think is really appropriate because aren't you in mourning, but you can't sustain. It's not an 100% thing. It's always there, Mm. but there's this other level. I mean, I was consumed with paperwork and complex administration, which was not interesting to anyone and actually was, for me, a great distraction because it was something to rail at, you know, (laughs) these administrators and these ridiculous responses that you'd get from, you know, the authorities when you rang up and, you know, Mm. I mean, I recently read it and it made me laugh so much, a response from a widow where someone was chasing her husband, who's been gone 10 years for a credit card debt, (laughs) which she didn't even know this credit, like she'd done everything with the estate. And they, she said, he's passed away. And they said, well, where can we find him? So ah, she she said she what? hesitated and then gave them the address of the plot at the cemetery <laughs> as if it was a house address. <laughs> it was her little revenge, you know. But no one talks about all of that either. There's no way because no one wants to really hear about the fact that, you know, oh, and then I'm dealing with the insurance company and this is mm. so annoying and the telecommunicator, you know, the Telstra lost, turned off his phone before I was ready for it, lost his voicemails on my mm. phone, those things where... People going, how are you doing? And you're going, we're a Telstra, you know, that's (laughs) not appropriate. So you're really aware of also the other stuff that is the ebb and flow of life that you've just got to engage with because you have to. You can't lie in bed and just not get up and and then, you know, just is just so incongruous. That's the word I'm looking for. It suggests to me that the notion that time heals is kind of wrong. It's not healing and people talk about like moving on and you don't Mm. move on, Mm. but it does change. You know, A, it becomes manageable and B, as time moves on, like I'm facing things with my children today. I mean, it's it's interesting because my my kids were early adolescents when when he died Um, and things that come up today, I actually can't imagine what he'd say or what his response would be anymore because we're dealing with issues that I really didn't sort of anticipate. You know, we were in the Mm. middle of sort of primary or just finishing primary school and now they're ending high school and they're really different issues, you know. But Mm. And at the same time there's also this change in the family dynamic for me and I know it's, I mean, for my my friend who has one child, it's a very intense relationship that's incredibly different, you know, since her, her husband died and that's been tricky. For me, the... I am so outnumbered. And so the energy of these, you know, adolescents has been something that has been kind of overwhelming where I'm the minority voice, which is not how it was at all. Mm. And then, you know, sometimes you just feel on your own. And so you're heightenedly aware of that person not being there. And so it moves in a way with your life. And the further we get, you know, I freaked out, um, you know, when I got older than him when he died, that mm. was like, how can I now be older? He's always been older than me, you know. Mm. So he will always, you know, be 50 and I age. Mm. And so I think that for me, and I said to someone the other day, you know, I'm still married. My relationship is continuing with my husband who's not participating in that. But all of the plans we made, I know what he'd say in some circumstances, the missing, the love, it's all still there. It's just uh, you've got to allow it sort of to shift. So what does that mean for repartnering? That's a really misunderstood, this is my passion project at the moment, (laughs) educating people around this because, you know, I've got a boyfriend who's also a widow. Um, His wife died of cancer and very different journey in terms of the end. You know, he, once she died, he kind of went, okay, I've got to re-engage with life, where for me it was a year of what has happened to my life, this isn't happening, you know. But at at some point we both kind of got to the, got to the point where we could functionally re-engage with 
the lives that we had. Mm-hmm. But our relationship is still with each other, but also with our spouses. So uh, mm-hmm. we have a relationship that has four people in it, you know. So he's constantly going, what do you think Ben would have said? Or now he knows well enough, says, I think Ben would have thought this or that, you know, where and his his wife, Bridget, you know, is very much part. He parents completely differently to the way I did. And we kind of have this relationship that involves the legacy where we talk about what is legacy and what we can let go of and where there are moments of guilt. And we have games that we play where sometimes it's if they came back for 20 minutes, what would Mm. you say? That life is the past, Mm. but it's also part of the present. You don't lose that in starting a relationship that might be part of the present and the future. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone can do that. And it's not like divorce. You know, divorce is a conscious decision. I don't want this anymore. Mm. And even though that's painful in a completely different way, that's not the same as wanting, wishing something was still there, knowing it isn't, respecting the memory of what was there, but also still living part of it and getting on with making plans for a future with someone else. Mm. So then um, four years later, would you say you are, I mean, is it, is it, what does it feel like to be happy? It's bittersweet mm. <laughs> because really everything that makes you, you know, my, we had presentation night, my two of my three kids won awards, you know, and you're there going, oh, he would have been so proud. You know, those moments mm. that make me cry and the kids hate that, stop <laughs> it, you know, can't you just be, you know, and so every happy moment has that edge to it as well. Um, but but aside from the thing, you know, he's not in every moment anymore where he was for the first, definitely for the first one, two years. I can say that, you know, there are just moments where it might be fleeting or he's not front and centre of those moments of, you know, happiness feels like it like it does with everyone. You just, you know, as you, you say, it settles on your chest. That stone is there always, but mm. you can still have the happiness that flows around that. You know, it's, it becomes just part of the fabric of you, I think. I mean, people say, oh, you know, you learn from your experience and you're stronger for it and all that sort of stuff. Is that accurate? Is that true? I mean, you change, I guess, from the experiences that you have in your life. You know, was this a huge one that needed an adaptation that was unexpected and not part of the plan and completely different? Yes, but I did surprise myself with what I could take on on my own. You know, I can now clean the glass out of a dishwasher with a YouTube video, which was not my thing. (laughs) I had a very funny experience recently with my friend who's the more recent widow who had a chirping alarm overnight, you know, where the battery had to be changed. And it was a very complex, changing a smoke alarm battery today. No, they don't make it easy. No, No. you need a degree in that. You have to turn off, you know, electricity to the area and you've got, there's a whole lot of things. She was telling me this whole process and lo and behold, literally three days later, at 11.30 at night, <laughs> it starts chirping and I'm going, right, talk me. Of course, I had no five-volt batteries at home, which I should have known from her story to have. <laughs> had to go in my pyjamas to three supermarkets to get, well, you know, <laughs> service stations at 11.30 at night. It was all, you know, but it's sort of the funny side now. But part of me is like angry. Why am I doing this? This isn't my job. He did this, you know. Yeah. So you still feel that, but then you do it. And I did have my six foot one 17 year old on a ladder helping. So I wasn't as badly off as, you know, completely alone. But while you rail, you also go, okay, I can do this. I'm all right. I can do this now. Where year one, I did not know anything. Mm. 
despite running my own business, I had never paid a bill, you know, in our house. And we just divided and conquered and somehow I ended up the Stepford wife at home and <laughs> that was fine until I didn't have the, you know, the guy running everything. So that I think the identity becomes part of that of like, am I this fierce warrior who can do everything myself or, you know, a lot of the widows groups, you see people railing at the world for not wanting to have to do the things that he did. What would you want people to understand about grief? I think it would be great if people could just sort of, I think, understand the complexity of it, but be not afraid to talk about it. I mean, that really is, there was someone who last summer, I'm, let's talk, Ben comes up all the time in conversations. For me, that's the way to keep him alive, you know, talk about, I kind of talk about him in the present, but I'll talk about things that happened in the past. But it's, it's a natural, organic conversation, as if he was here. Mm. And she said, I'm surprised. I thought it would be really upsetting if I mentioned him, you know, I'm surprised that you've talked about him. I was like quite confronted by that as well. You know, even in the first three months after he died, we went to stay with close friends for a weekend away. It was a long weekend. These are friends we'd camped with, we'd travelled with, we'd, you know, best our kids were friends. And the husband said, I don't know how to talk to you anymore. It was like I, you know, they saw that I had changed mm-hmm. and I had, but I wasn't even allowed to feel normal in what should have been normal as well. Mm. And mind you, that weekend I had driven off to cry, you know, mm-hmm. when I could be on my own. It was terrible to be around people. It was terrible to be on my own. But if people accepted that this is something that, you know, they're still here with you and you will change. And so being on that journey of how is it today is the question, not how the kid's doing, how are you doing, you know, it's today. How's today? Yeah, because mm-hmm. is there a sense that people want you to be better? But but and you, I remember you saying to me that um, people expect you to grieve in a certain way, and if you're not, then they get a bit put out by that. Yeah, they do, and it's this idea of the new normal or the mood. Like even even you know, sort of having a relationship and falling in love with someone. You know, I hate it when people go, oh, "I'm so glad you found someone else." It's <laughs> like because I feel like that's not fair to also the relationship I'm still having, you know, and it, that complexity which people don't ask about because they don't, they're just like, this is so good because now you've moved on, isn't that great? And, you know, everyone's happy again now so we can just pretend that didn't happen. I mean, the other thing is that that idea of how do you keep them alive because that's the other point of, you know, for people who are grieving or there's lots of conversations about how to handle um moments, big moments, you know, the anniversary of the death, what do people do, the the birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas, you know, there's, do you keep traditions going? Do you do things by self? Um, everyone's got their own answer, but we have, we use Ben's birthday as a day of celebrating his life. Mm. And we pulled together all the people from all of his walks of life that never would intersect in any other time. He's the common denominator and they, it's this kind of, you know, celebration and where people tell stories, and even if it's not focused around telling stories about him, it's his people in a room mm. together once a year. And my kids love that. They're terrified every year of what I'm going to be like on the anniversary day. They don't want to come to the cemetery. They don't want to do anything. But this day they look forward to. And are there things that you would advise or, you know, what would you share to people who are living with a grief now that might suggest, I don't know, might help them in some way? 
Well, the, the partner grief's different to other griefs. Mm. I think I've also discovered that where, and that's also difficult for people to understand because I haven't lost a child. And so even though I, I would not say my experience is anything like it because, you know, losing mm. someone close to me, having my life changed, there might be similarities in that sense. Life will never be the same, but there's so many different overlays. And so it's part of it is having, in terms of, it, of talking to other people, really being able to have the conversation of what do you need and where are you at and how is it today. But then there's also um, the, the idea for them to know that it will, it will ebb and change. And I think it, for, for widows anyway, it looks like to me when I've been watching these patterns of people arriving in the hellhole and looking at, oh, my God, what's happened and other people comforting them, somewhere there is a choice, a conscious choice that you've got to make of am I going to stay here or am I going to move on? Am I going to embrace what life has to offer or am I just going to sit in this space? You know, and there's no right, obviously it's for everybody, but there is this moment of the parting of the ways. And there are those that will, and and particularly for older people, I think they're more inclined to go, he was my only and I'm just waiting to die now. And they mourn everything they don't have. The holiday season's so hard. Some of these widows who are American, you know, with Thanksgiving and Christmas and rifts within families and and they just sit in this space and are really I don't have any reason to live mm. and then there's this this other group who go I need to live a full life to pay homage to this person's life I need to love again and I need to take up every opportunity and live and I think that the people who do that are made by the people who are sitting to almost feel like so even within this widow world, it's like you are, you didn't love them as much if you're willing oh, to, you know, I love mm-hmm. them more because I won't move now and yes. I won't live and I'll never be happy until yes. we're together. Mm. So even that's interesting. You know. So what was the instigator for you to choose to move on? Not move on, but not sit, I suppose. I think my kids couldn't stand the misery. You know, really couldn't, I, I couldn't imagine I, I just couldn't imagine ever being happy again, couldn't imagine doing the things that I'd done. It was, you know, I had different plans for my career, for, you know, that I'd been discussing with Ben. We'd moved into a new house. There's a whole lot of stuff on the horizon and it was like, well, this is it now. Just get through the days, get the kids through school, make sure they've got a good life. But then somewhere along the line uh, toward the end of that first year, it became really apparent that my deep unhappiness was making them unhappy. They wanted a mother who was happy and engaged with life. They they said they lost both of us. And they said, we, he died, but you're still here, but you're not the same. And I mm. kept saying, can't be the same, can't be the same. And I just decided after the, that year, the first year, okay, enough. I've got to somehow just start saying yes, even if I don't feel it, start reengaging and start being positive and sort of forced myself back into it mm. for my kids. My kids, I unspokenly decided they wanted to remember their father with love and with laughter and with stories and they wanted this family to work and if you know and even now if there are times when I go it's all too hard they're like no 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 come back Mm. (laughs) you know we don't work like that amazing yeah what do you wish people understood about losing a partner I wish that they understood that a it will always be that loss becomes a part of the fabric of who you are and it changes how you see the world and it changes your relationship with yourself and all the relationships around you. 
but that you still can move forward in life and create opportunities and take up you know, and be and have happiness and have experiences that fulfill you. So it doesn't stop your life, but you take it forward within that life. How do you have a conversation with your kids about this kind of grief? <laughs> that's that's the hardest thing ever because you know I'm someone who does like to communicate. You know, and they do too, but they don't. A they don't they don't understand. They're not married. They've never been married. And one of my children, when I threw at her going, you don't understand what it's like to lose your husband, she said, and you don't know what it's like to lose your father. And so the conversation is different. So like I said before about not really understanding how it would be to lose a child, mm. my father's alive and well and what they lost, you know, is, it grows with them. And it's interesting because when I talk to the kids about my loss is, is very uh, definable. I know what our life was like. I know what it was like to have him as part. I know the plans we made. I know what he thought about things. For the kids, as they grow, what they've lost changes. Mm. So the not having him at my graduation or not having him at my wedding or not having him, you know, to kiss me goodnight, different, whatever age you are. And that continues all the time, the what would it be like if he was here. Mm. I'm sure you still think about that, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um it really struck me when I had my first boyfriend and I saw his sister with their dad and it was a real shock to me to see a father-daughter relationship because I'd never seen one and kind of just, it just was so deeply sad mm-hmm. that I had never had that. Um, and then when I had my own daughter, seeing my daughter with my husband, you know, the just profound sadness that I because watching, you know, that little girl with my, you know, my husband, it, yeah, very, very um, ongoing, differing, changing grief yeah. that does sit with you in very different ways and, and similarly just comes at very strange moments. Mm. So that's a very interesting thing that your kids are now in a family where, they talk, where you talk openly about death. Yeah. That sort of that changes them and makes them very different probably from all of their friends. Most they, of their they friends. still think because they didn't see Ben, there's a kind of a joke that, is not a joke for one of my children that he's in witness protection. <laughs> that part's a joke, but actually the idea for years, the dreams would be he came back and he's mm. in hiding mm. and he's in the bathroom and, you know, my daughter who was going through adolescence when he died, you know, one, I mean, you don't need to even see a psychologist to know what it means. You know, the, the dream was that he came in and she got out of the shower and he was hiding in the bathroom and she said, you can't see me like this. My body's changed. You can't be in here. And he was like, I don't tell mum I'm here. You know, it was this whole thing. That because she and she said, well, you know, because I never saw him. I don't. They wanted to see the coroner's report because they said, well, we don't know how he died. You know, so yeah. those things that became come quite sort of, I guess, tangible for people who, where it's sudden. How does the brain catch up? You yeah. know, you probably know a lot about that, Jamie. Yeah, it takes good quite a bit of time. Mm. Like the first phase of grief is denial, and in that phase, you know, part of it is to minimize the pain in which you're going through, and it's also just giving yourself time to understand what is happening, try and comprehend the, the reality of the situation, which can take a little while. Yes. Right? Mm. So, Jamie, we've in every episode, we've kind of finished the conversation with what do we give ourselves permission to do mm. in this conversation, in this day, if we're actually addressing a grief? What do we give ourselves permission to do to live and to manage the grief? of losing someone? 
I would give yourself permission today to have some time and space to allow yourself to feel the grief, feel the sadness. Perhaps get outside, go to the garden. I love that analogy that you shared, but go to the garden and, and, and let it go to the earth. But I think people should also give themselves permission to live. I don't think it means you didn't love them. And I don't think it doesn't mean they're not there with you. I think you, you can give yourself permission to get the most out of your life and, mm. and that can be a way of, yeah, paying homage. Yeah, without, guilt, without guilt without as guilt. well. Yeah. Is that practice? It takes strength because the world really wants to see a particular way. They've got this image, you know, it is the crying in the corner and, you know, or the Mrs. Havisham sort of idea, you know, although she never got married, but, you know, you know, yeah. the, the mm. sort of thing of sitting and just, you know, weeping. And they can't, Calera, that's good that you're happy because you've moved on. It's that whole, it's having the conversation going, now the sadness is still there, but I'm also really grateful for my life and I've got a great life and, because people still go, how are you doing? With a really sad sort of, you know, and it's incongruous to go, we're great. You know, we're looking forward to summer. We went out for dinner the other night. My kids did well at presentation. You know, normal life things. Mm. And I still miss him. And there are moments which are overwhelmingly sad. And I still wish he was here. But we're great. Lara, thanks so much for sharing your story. I think it's really powerful and a really important conversation. Thanks so much for having me. In our next episode of Best of You, we're talking about caring for the carer. Now, if you love someone who has a health issue, whether it's mental or physical, you may not see yourself as a carer, but most likely your support is ongoing, crucial, and puts your own needs last. So we're going to be exploring how to keep you energised, healthy, and most importantly, like you are cared for also. That's in the next episode of Best of You. Best of You was created in collaboration with the House of Wellness. Written and presented by me, Joe Stanley, and my co-host, Dr. Jamie Lee, executive producer, Alex Mitchell, and audio production by Nicola Sitch. Listener.